Welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. I created the show with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it starts with love, love from the hip. The word queen is often first defined as that of the wife or widow of a king or the wife or widow of a tribal chief, whereas under the definition of a king, the husband of a queen isn't even mentioned. Instead, the definitions lead with a male monarch, a powerful chief, followed up by a person or thing regarded as the finest or most important in its sphere or group, a male sovereign, and or used in the case of large animals and plants, like a king cobra. Even the dictionary paints the queen as weaker than the king. Our recently departed and deeply admired Queen Elizabeth II served as queen from 1952 to 2022, the longest reigning queen in history, and almost the longest ruling monarch, but was surpassed by the reign of King Louis XIV of France by just a few years. As a constitutional monarch, nonetheless, she held no real power in the British government. This is not to say, however, that she still was not a powerful woman with a vast influence. Although her role became mainly symbolic, she represented the female sovereignty that once was. Ironically, in chess, the queen is the most powerful piece on the board. It is also the only piece representing a woman. The queen has the most freedom, able to move in any direction across any number of unoccupied squares. In addition, she offers up the most impressive attacks. The queen first appeared on the chessboard as early as 997, but had limited movement at first. By the late 1400s, however, the queen piece suddenly gained stronger powers. She rose from her status of just wife of the king to a symbolic figurehead. A recent theory suggests that the Queen Peace's power was inspired by Queen Isabella of Castile herself. Along with Queen Isabella, other powerful and distinct queenships began to finally take form in medieval Europe. While many queenships proved to be quite successful, historical evidence suggests that queens made better monarchs than kings. Not only did they tend to rule longer, but also were admired for their strength and considered the greatest assets overall. Even in the game of chess, the queen is sacrificed for sizable gain, whether it be to procure a better position on the board or better yet, a checkmate on the king. In reality, Queen Elizabeth II, like many queens before her, had to make countless sacrifices in order to uphold an image that she knew would still be judged by all, especially men. Queens toggled between their beautiful feminine energy to bring softness into their otherwise harsh world and their fierce cutthroat masculine energy necessary to rule and also survive amongst a court dominated by men. This masculinity can be measured in the wars that were waged. In fact, historical data has proved while European queens weren't actively seeking to wage wars, they did indeed wage more wars than kings, especially when married. Reason being, queens managed foreign and war policies while their husbands took charge of the state through taxes, judicial issues, and crime. This division of power allowed the queen more time to throw herself into wartime affairs and to subsequently strengthen the success of the country. Scholars also discovered that queens stood a greater chance of being attacked when they were single, as their rivals viewed them to be weaker and more vulnerable. Throughout history, a queen's right to rule or convey the right to rule became challenged with a series of crises like the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War. Her power slowly began to be taken away. Despite this, queens still undoubtedly wielded influence beyond their roles as wives and mothers of kings. They strived to build and strengthen family, community, faith, and alliances, all of which most kings did not value. How they functioned is at times ambiguous, as the complicated balance between power and subjugation allowed some queens to become rulers, while others were forced to exercise more subtle forms of control. It became a delicate dance between their feminine and masculine energy. Balance became both a queen's true challenge and her measure of success. Queen Elizabeth I was only 25 years old when she inherited the throne. 
She is renowned for saying that although she had the body of a weak and feeble woman, she had the heart of and the stomach of a king. We women have been living in a man's world as long as we have known. We too have toggled like the queens before us between our femininity and masculinity, wearing all of the hats, playing all of the roles in order to survive. In that, it has been easy to lose sight of who we are and who we came here to be. Queen Elizabeth II, while she was not born to be queen, became the queen she was through service. She was willing to meet the longevity of the journey that carried her so far. Maybe the true acquisition of the crown, a symbol of sovereignty and divinity, must be born as a pilgrimage. And maybe the pilgrimage is the journey back to our true selves. As Queen Elizabeth II said in her 2011 speech in Australia, quoting an aboriginal proverb, We are all visitors to this time, this place. We are just passing through. Our purpose here is to observe, to learn, to grow, to love, and then we return home. Today on Love from the Hip, I am thrilled to have Dr. Rima Bonario here with us today. Rima is an author, teacher, and soul coach. She'll be sharing wisdom from her new book, The Seven Queendoms, a soul map for embodying sacred feminine sovereignty. Rima will reveal the queen archetypes and how to connect with them in order to step into your personal sovereignty and live a happier, more purposeful life. So stick around. We'll be right back. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R. Com. Taking care of your body's largest organ can be difficult, but not for Astera Skincare Mist. This topical skin spray supports your skin's own natural healing defenses. Astera Skincare Mist is a light misting spray, free of parabens, alcohol, toxins, and fragrance. This all natural topical skin spray will take the woe out of your skincare worries without clogging your pores. Irritation, inflammation, redness, post procedure sensitivities. No problem. With Astera Skincare Mist, you can continue about your day without the skin dismay. Acne, rosacea, psoriasis, sunburns, rashes, and fungus? Don't let these skin concerns inconvenience you. Instead, let Astera Skincare Mist allow you to be happy in the skin you're in. Available at Sakura Skin and Mind. Learn more at AsteraCare.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R-A Care.com. Peach fuzz is great. If it's on a peach, let Sakura Skin and Mind remove unsightly hair with dermaplaning. Although its primary purpose is to remove layers of dead skin, it's just one of the added benefits, leaving your skin baby smooth, safe, effective, fast, and affordable. What a concept! Sakura Skin and Mind wants you to look your very best, and dermaplaning is just one tool in their chest. Find out about dermaplaning at sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U-R-A, skinandmind.com. We bring out the healthy skin and healthy way of thinking you didn't know you had. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe and share my podcast, Love from the Hip. That's H-Y-P, anywhere you can find podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of having author, teacher, and soul coach, Dr. Rima Bonario on my show. Hi, Dr. Rima. Thanks for being here today. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. And I understand you're on vacation, but where do you normally reside? I, I live in Las Vegas currently. Really enjoy the desert. Nice. <laughs> so how did you come to write your beautiful book, The Seven Queendoms, A Soul Map for Embodying Sacred Feminine Sovereignty? The book itself grew out of my own teaching and the curriculums that I'd created and working with my students. But all of that work 
came out of my own personal journey, my own personal spiritual journey. And so the things that got me started on the spiritual path were partly recovering from growing up in a restrictive Catholic environment um, and the sort of downsides to that in my early life. I had a, a failed early marriage. I call it a starter marriage. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's sort of made me start questioning things. And then I remarried and um, we had a daughter and I began to notice that some of the same behaviors I saw happening in my family, I was just repeating these same mistakes and I just didn't want to have that happen. You know, it really consciously chosen not to do that. So I realized I had some inner work to do to, to address what was underneath that and making it difficult for me to follow through on my own intention. And, and then ultimately what led me to the, the, the women's work was as my husband and I were doing our own growth work and, and growing in our relationship, we, we sort of got real honest, kept getting more and more honest with each other. And we had a moment of sort of challenge in our intimate relationship in which he was sort of like, you know, I really want you to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, I went on this journey to understand what was going on with my body and why the success that I was able to have in the other areas of my life was stopping short in that arena. And it, was it mainly because you were embracing most of your masculine energy? Yeah, that's really what it turned out to be is that I, like all of us, have grown up in a world, as you said so beautifully at the top of the show, that's been really profoundly connected to masculine forms of power and prefers masculine forms of power. And so because we as women have been born into that world, we have typically just mimicked masculine power patterns without realizing that there's this whole other way of being, first of all, that has value and is important and is needed on the planet right now. But that other way of being is more conducive to our physical bodies and actually allows us to be more of who we really are mm -hmm. when we understand how we can run our body in a way that that manages our energy well. And we're going to get deeper into that. But what did being a woman then look like for you as a child? Well, I didn't, I didn't like what I saw in my household. So my father was the one with all the power. And my mom was disempowered inside of that dynamic. And I learned very early on where I needed to align Ella myself, you know, who, who was I going to align with? And it, and it wasn't my mom. And um, although I loved her, it just was a very strange scenario. And, and I could see that if I really wanted to have the, any power in the situation, I needed my dad's attention. So I became a tomboy and watched football with him and did, you know, projects around the house. And we weren't very sporty people, like in terms of our own physical being. Um, it was really all about brains. My dad was a, a, actually a, a college professor. So we would do, you know, the crossword puzzle together, New York Times crossword puzzle, and just those kinds of things that were interesting to him. Mm -hmm. And so that that all worked just fine until I hit puberty. Hmm. <laughs> and then it was a whole different ball game. You know, he got a bit squirrely, like, you know, who am I now? How does he relate to me now right. as a sort of burgeoning young woman? And I wanted to explore what was happening, you know, as the hormones were turning on and I was getting crushes with boys, but nothing, all the people that I liked, they just didn't uh, reciprocate that because everything in my energy body was, was not reading girl. Mm. You know? And, and I didn't understand that that's what was going on under the surface. And because I had sort of rejected my mom and all things feminine is not powerful. And I didn't want to be in her shoes. She was, you know, regularly dishonored. Um, so it was a challenge to yeah. figure out how to do this thing called woman, you know, right. how do you be a woman? And now you had said you didn't want to be your mother in raising your own child. So how did motherhood then affect your strong masculine energy? Well, some of what we don't realize is that Mothering itself is actually a masculine act. So we've genderized it because women do it. So we call it feminine. But if you think about it just strictly from the point of view of energy, anything that has an outward flow is masculine. 
And anything that has an inward flow is feminine. And if you think about yourself as an electromagnetic energy field, which we all are, every living thing is, we have an in pole and an out pole. The in pole is the feminine pole. The out pole is the masculine pole. So anything that we're involved in that requires an output of energy and you know, raising children is incredibly energy intensive, you know, a lot of energy. And even when you think about it this way, we gestate our babies in our wombs. That's a very feminine energy where it's simply allowing the space for something to grow. Then we birth the child and we bring it up here to the chest where we nurse it. And this is an output. Hmm. And so our in pole in our bodies is in our pelvic area and our pelvic bowl we pull energy inward that way and as women our energy moves outward through the chest whereas in a male body it runs in the opposite direction and so what I learned during my time as a mother I was mothering my daughter I was in graduate school getting my doctorate and I was running two businesses (laughs) a lot of output right a lot of output and so while I wanted to be more soft and nurturing. I mean, I had a lot of love for her and and we were very close, but my energy body was so taxed that I didn't have the patience that I really wanted to have. And I would lose my temper. And this was kind of part of my conditioning growing up in an Italian Catholic household. You know, the one acceptable emotion was anger. So there was (laughs) a lot of guilt. (laughs) Yes, yes, guilt too, but guilt's kind of quiet. Right. And so there was a lot of that, you know, exploding behavior, which, you know, ultimately I could see on her face was was really damaging her and hurting her. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got into shadow work, which is a big part of, of what I teach women, how to understand the conditioning and get released from it, alongside of making this shift of learning to inhabit our body in a way that is more nourishing, where we actually recognize that for for someone living in a female body, it works better if we receive first and fill ourselves up to the point of overflow and then give from this place of overflow. But most of us were not taught to do that. Most of us were trained to give and give and give until we just give out. Yeah, receiving is so, so incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we don't do it very well at all. So what were the benefits, though, of having this masculine energy, would you say? Well, I mean, from the outside looking in, everything looked amazing. You know, I looked very successful, doing great things in my career. I had ran a tight ship at home, mm-hmm. had a very happy family, you know, and I enjoy my masculine nature. I mean, I adore the fact that I can create and produce and I'm very energized and I love to bring the vision that I have into the 3D realm. You know, that's an important part of what we're doing here. And if we're doing that only and we aren't understanding how to replenish ourselves, we will not get very far. This is a a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And Part of what we need to learn to do is care for ourselves. And it's really shocking to me how much we have to start back at the beginning to get better at caring for ourselves, because it's not just about the bubble baths, you know, and the and the ec- excellent, you know, expensive coffee. It's really about what nourishes me at the deepest soul, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional level. Yeah. And who we are. Right. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the not enough club in your book, which I absolutely love and completely resonates with me. Can you tell my listeners more about that? Yeah. So this not enough club was this thing that I discovered that I had unwittingly become a card carrying member of where (laughs) I, I looked around my life. And despite how beautiful it was, I still continually felt like there wasn't enough time and there wasn't enough money and there there wasn't enough joy and there wasn't enough rest. And there wasn't, you know, just everywhere I looked, there were there were places where all I could see was lack. And part of that stemmed from the negation of the feminine principles, which are very much about the energy of being instead of the energy of doing. Hmm. And if you're defining your whole life through the lens of doing, 
then there's no amount of doing that will ever be enough. <laughs> and, and ultimately that translates into us believing that we are not enough, that there's something intrinsically broken or wrong with us because we can't keep all the plates spinning. And this is something that I see a lot of with my clients who are in corporate. They have their male counterparts that do all the sort of similar things. And they don't understand why it's a challenge for their female counterparts sometimes to continue pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. Mm -hmm. However, when we go home, very often we've got twice as many responsibilities when we get home and we've got to push, push, push there as well. And then we're supposed to look a certain way. So we've got to get up in the morning and go to the gym <laughs> and, you know, all the things and check all the boxes. And once again, it's like not, not pretty enough, not, you know strong enough, not thin enough, not aggressive enough, whatever it is. And it turns into a habit of self-rejection, sometimes even self-loathing, self-disappointment, certainly self-criticism. Yeah. And always feeling like you have to catch up. Yeah. So yeah. what what would be the first recommendation then to drop the club? <laughs> well, it starts by becoming willing to find a different way forward and to question everything you've been taught about where your value comes from. And, you know, our whole society sets us up to place our value outside of ourselves. So, you know, our religion tells us we have to follow certain kinds of rules and guidelines. We go to school and they want us to perform in a particular way for this, you know, set of grades that's the carrot. You know, our parents obviously are very involved in and have goals and views for us. And and as you were describing this difference between the way our cultures talk about masculine sovereignty or the king versus mm -hmm. the queen energy, we've been taught for millennia as women that we have to define ourselves in relationship to the men we have in our lives. So and true. so it becomes this battle. The very first thing we have to do is to take a step backwards and see all the places where we have given our power away, where we have allowed ourselves to be defined outside of ourselves and begin to ask the question of what does it look like for me if I'm living a sovereign life mm -hmm. as the sovereign of my own queendom? How do I own my own sovereignty? And that means that I have the power of self-governance. I am free from external control and influence, and I'm able to make decisions for myself that I feel good about and strongly about. And while I might take into consideration and often do how these impact others, I don't do it at the complete expense of my true self. Love that. Now, is this in line with the shadow work that you mentioned earlier? Yes. And, and one of the fun ways that I created to talk about shadow is based on the fact that I'm working with the queen in these seven different domains. And so I love the queen archetype because she's She's when we even say the word, it conjures up a different experience for us. You know, we sit a little taller when we think <laughs> about a queen and, you know, we understand that there is a sense of adornment that comes from that. There's a sense of having been anointed as the anointed one who's, you know, christened to lead. And we get to be that for ourselves. And we have to watch out for the places where our less than perfect upbringing trained us away from our true nature. And so breaking the, you know, I had to say, okay, I want to live a sovereign life. The easiest way for me to do that was to actually break it down. So I had these seven different domains, spiritual sovereignty, mental sovereignty, your Dharma sovereignty, which is your passion and your service work, um, emotional sovereignty, energetic sovereignty, sexual sovereignty, and physical sovereignty. And these are all facets and of our full sovereignty. Absolutely. And so you can be crushing it in one of those areas, doing really well, and then have another area or two that you're really not doing very well in. And this is where the shadow comes into play. So I teach how important it is to be centered in your body as a queen and recognizing that any in any of these domains, 
they have a focus and you can have too much of that focus or too little of that focus. And once, and, and that pulls us off center. And mm-hmm. um, once we sort of go off center, we end up in these shadowy areas. So it was really fun to create this set of Queens that hold that central energy and then explore what's it like to have too little of one of those Queens or too much of one of those energies. And so So that's kind of what the book explores. Yeah, and we're going to get deeper into those queen archetypes, but how did you arrive at the queen archetype to begin with? Well, I did some research and I was aware as as I was doing my own life journey and I was you know, doing what my husband asked, which was to try to get get this figured out so that we could have more enjoyment and more passion in our relationship as we were aging. And I saw the very common idea of the goddess of being a three a three phases like the maiden the mother and the crone as being three phases of a woman's life and while my mothering was sort of coming to an end i knew that i wasn't ready for crone i wasn't looking to just <laughs> right. go off into the sunset and be finished you know <laughs> and and so i was also metaphysically at that time just getting a lot of information about us moving from a time of threes into a time of fours mm. you know people would talk about body mind spirit mm-hmm. some people would talk about you know soul and i'm like where is the soul in that we need body mind spirit and soul totally <laughs> and so so i did some research and i discovered that in some cultures there was this understanding that there was this time in a woman's life where you actually got to own the queen energy and it fell between mother and crone mm-hmm. and so like the maiden is not responsible for anything she's she's in and of herself she's not beholden to a man in any way it's not defined by her relationship to men the mother is very much involved in the family unit and there's by necessity a man involved in that whether you stay in a marriage or not in modern times we have that choice the queen however is done with much of that mothering responsibility and it's time now for her to take center stage where she gets to be the focus of her life and she gets to put into practice all the that she's learned through those mothering years where she gets to in a way sometimes we are reparenting ourselves and getting to be at this level of our highest service possible and that only comes when we've addressed the challenges that we're bringing with us in our subconscious from our childhood years. I love that. And with that, I hate to interrupt you, but we're going to take a quick break. Everyone stay tuned for the Weekly Skinny up next and more love from the hip. On this Weekly Skinny, I would like to talk about hydrofacials, which is also referred to as hydrodermabrasion. There has been a lot of hype over these facials for the last few years, but what are they? A hydrofacial is a resurfacing treatment which uses a device with an exfoliating tip paired with suction that is run along your skin. This treatment promises to deliver exfoliation by removing dead skin cells, a deep cleansing of the pores by using a very light chemical peel, and hydration through an array of serums infused into your skin. It is similar to another skincare treatment called microdermabrasion, although unlike microdermabrasion, It does not involve crystals and uses anti-aging serums. Hydrofacials are said to reduce fine lines, wrinkles, and enlarged pores, as well as increase firmness and even out skin tone. It is also said to be suitable for any age and skin type. It is not recommended, however, for those dealing with rosacea, active rashes, and sunburn, along with those who are pregnant. The treatment takes around 30 minutes and costs anywhere from $150 to $300. There is no downtime, and makeup can be worn the next day. Results from one treatment are said to last a week, but some say it can have lasting effects. But does it really? Many medical estheticians and plastic surgeons say while that rosy glow is immediate, it is only temporary. This rosiness is caused by the suctioning and vacuuming process bringing good blood flow to the skin, not to mention a result from the chemical peel that is added which can also leave the skin glowing for 24 to 36 hours. While it also claims to be medical, many argue there is no medical education required to own one of these devices, much less offer these treatments. In addition, many argue some other claims are misleading. 
like suctioning out blackheads, for example, which the suction does not. To add to these false claims, the popular Instagram practice of posting the dirty water after a hydrofacial is also deceiving. This gunk is not debris from your pores, but rather lotions, makeup, or sunscreen. Or, if done on clean skin, it is the peel solution sucked into the reservoir, giving it that dirty appearance. Not to mention, all that suctioning is not good for our skin, period, as with microdermabrasion. It can make our skin more sensitive and increase redness. So is it worth it? In my opinion, it sounds like it impacts your wallet more than your skin. Better results can be achieved with deeper chemical peels, microneedling, and dermal planing. Better for your skin and for your wallet, too. Your skin is your body's largest organ. Care for it properly, starting with your face. Sakura Skin and Mind offers several clinical facial treatments to help stimulate collagen production, eliminate toxins, boost circulation, and deeply cleanse. See a new you in your mirror. Clinical facials range from $90 and up. Do your face a favor. Sakura Skin and Mind, erasing wrinkles one clinical facial at a time. Learn more at sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U. URA skinandmind.com. Welcome back to Left from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just tuning in, I have Dr. Rima Benario here with us today. So, Dr. Rima, before the show, you were sharing about the three archetypes, maiden, mother, and crone, and that really the queen needed to be added as well. And I just want to know is it harder for women to move into the queen when they haven't been giving to themselves prior? like especially in motherhood? Well, it's a, it's a habit of success and a habit of attention that we need to develop, giving to ourselves and putting ourselves on the list, even if it's not first, just making sure we're on there somewhere. And so, yes, if you don't have experience with that, if you've been trained away from that, as a lot of women have been, it can be very challenging in the beginning. It can feel selfish. It can feel fake. It can feel shallow. It can feel uncomfortable just mm-hmm. and scary even because we, you know, if we've experienced a kind of giving that wasn't healthy when we were younger, where either people didn't respect our physical boundaries and even sometimes sexual boundaries, you know, and we, yeah. so we, we shut down, we shut off, we build walls. We don't want things coming in that we can't control and we can isolate ourselves or we can go to the other direction where we feel reliant on getting from others, but we don't actually know how to do that in a healthy way. So we can either become takers instead of receivers. Sometimes people end up in a situation where they see they need other people, but they feel weak Mm. for needing other people because everything they know about the other people is not trust them because they've been unhealthy and painful to be around. And so that sets up a dynamic where we feel like our, our, our right to have needs. Every human being has needs. This is a normal part of being a human being, but we, we kind of develop this sense of disgust around mm-hmm. our own needs, wants, and desires. And they get so hidden from us that when we actually do have time to do something for, for ourselves, we often don't even know what we want. Right. You know, we, we don't know how to start. So it's, it's a challenge. And I think that there's a problem with that kind of overgiving. I call that in when we're talking about the the loving queen in the heart. That's the sacrificial queen where she sacrifices everything. We don't teach our children because they're watching us that they too should know that they get to keep some things for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we end up repeating this cycle of an unhealthy behavior, not having solid and strong boundaries and not having a solid and strong sense of self to know how to be in relationship with other people. And, and that's not going to serve anyone in the long run. No, not at all. So in the work that you've done with women, do you think most women or have you found that most women are unhappy? 
Yeah, happiness is a real tricky wicket. So um, I think because in general, we've lived in a world that has appreciated the masculine value more and men have a tendency to have greater access to that masculine energy. By the way, we all have masculine and feminine energies inside of us. Mm -hmm. It's just what we've chosen to out picture in the world and what the world tends to appreciate more. And because we've lived in a in a time where there's, really for a long time, there's this sense of fear that there's not enough. We have to rattle the sword and, and be ready for war at any moment. We, we prize this sort of more masculine outputting energy. And we tend to not care for the softer, kinder, slower energy of the feminine. And, and so that means that when we devalue that as an energy, we devalue things related to that energy and females can access that energy better. So we get confused with that. Mm -hmm. So, so female happiness is not high on the list of things that, that the culture in general has cared about. I mean, we just got to vote in this country <laughs> in 1920, where mm -hmm. our opinion even was valid. You know, we were, have been called everything from sacks of excrement to soulless and not human. Yeah. And there are still places around the world where you can kill your daughter if somebody says she stepped out of line and it's called an honor killing because she's brought dishonor to the family. So even in the Western world, while we are trying to get a footing and, and get some sense of sovereignty over ourselves, our happiness levels have not increased. We, we've gone into the work world and the research study that came out from Yale that I cite in the book describes very clearly that even though our economic um, in, increase, we've increased in the economic income that we have, which is a very good thing. We mm -hmm. needed to have the seats at the table for sure. That hasn't equated to greater happiness. And though we've invited the men in our lives to take on more responsibilities at home, and even though it isn't quite even, the research does show they've actually gotten more happiness <laughs> out of stepping in to more of the connection that's available at home. And what that says to me is that we, when we don't have a balance in our larger world where we're respecting the, the being and the doing, then none of us get to be as happy as we could be. Mm, okay. So let's move into your seven queen archetypes. How did you come up with seven? Well, again, it was part of me looking at these different parts of my life that I wanted to address. And I was also studying many other forms of sovereignty and energy practices. I was working in the body with the body's energy system and the chakras, which there are seven of. I'm born on October 7th. So <laughs> somehow these things all just ended up weaving together. And I found the ways that these seven queens aligned with these other very powerful mystical systems that we've had for thousands of years. And I brought them together through this lens of what it means to be a queen. And at its root, a queen is well resourced. She must have the resources she needs behind her in order to take care of her realm. So I began looking at each of these areas of my life to say, how well resourced do I feel in any of these areas? Um, so if we're talking about spirituality, is this, do I feel really solid in my spirituality, in my spiritual life, or do I feel like something is missing? And I just took that question all the way through. Now, all seven of these queens exist within us at all times, and we just are activating them? Yeah, that's a beautiful way of saying that. They're, they are here, they're allies for us, and we can actually develop a relationship with them. And I like to think of them as my queen's council. Mm. And so I can bring to my queens any question that I have that I'm wondering about. They provide guidance for me. There's a, a real connection to the qualities that each queen holds. So for example, the empowered queen who is aligned with the uh, solar plexus chakra, she's the queen that I most call on when I have have something that I want to move forward with and I want to stand in my personal power. So I need to know my true self and I need to be willing to stand in my power. 
if I use her too much, she goes from being empowered to being what I call the cutthroat queen, Hmm. where you can sort of imagine the queen of hearts is off with their heads and she's just flailing around and everybody gets hurt. If I don't have enough of her energy, it's like being the beheaded queen where you yourself cut your own head off and you are a victim and unable to be powerful and move your life forward. Mm -hmm. And that's not an empowered place to be. So we have to watch out for each of those side rails. If we go too far down the road or we're not enough in the power of a particular queen. Now that's the shadow side of each queen. Would you yeah. say now, can you briefly just go through each seven, not all the characteristics, but each, what are the seven? Yeah, I'd love to name them for you. So if you start at the root chakra, the base of the body, this would be the grounded queen. She oversees physical sovereignty. Then we move up into the sacral chakra and here's where we find the passionate queen. And she's all of our needs, wants, and desires are her domain and our ability to know that we have a right to our desire. Then we go to the empowered queen, which we just spoke about. The heart is where we access the loving queen. And she's really responsible for our emotional sovereignty and our connection with each other and with ourselves. But primarily it has to start with ourselves. Uh, Then we move to the throat chakra where we find the expressive queen. She helps us have our voice in the world and share what it is that is our medicine to share in the world. All of us have some kind of medicine to offer. The third eye is where we find the visionary queen. She helps us with our mental sovereignty so that we can see clearly. And then at the crown, this is where we find the divine queen. And her role is actually to help us to connect to our sense of self as a divine being expressing on earth. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And with that, we're going to take another quick break, but stick around for more Love from the Hip. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R. A health crisis is one of the most challenging situations we will experience in our lifetime. It leaves us frightened, confused, and asking, why did this happen to me? Transformational coach Rory Reich experienced his healing crisis when the life he had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around him. The universe had offered him a challenge. He chose to accept it and to rediscover who he was before it was too late. In his book, Transform Yourself Through Disease, Rory shares his personal journey alongside eight practical steps to help those who are stuck realize their self-impairing beliefs and discover ways of transforming them so they can reclaim their health and create the life of their dreams. Don't let your health crisis define you. Take the next step and transform yourself today. For a free life coaching consultation, contact Rory at RoryReich.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-E-I-C-H.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just joining us, I have Dr. Rima Benario here with us, sharing valuable wisdom from her new book, The Seven Queendoms, A Soul Map for Embodying Sacred Feminine Sovereignty. So, Dr. Rima, I want to just clarify. So our connection to these queens that exist within each of us is to allow us to step fully into our sovereignty. Is that correct? That's right. We want to we want to develop our sense of sovereignty by working with these queens and and they help us know that we have we have certain rights as beings and we want to step into the power of those rights. 
Now, in your book, you share so many beautiful things, your poetry and even oils and colors that align with each of these queens. But you also mentioned some exercises. Now, are the exercises that you mentioned to connect with the queen also to help us maintain or are they practices to help maintain our sovereignty as well? So we have two jobs here when it comes to bringing our sovereignty online. The first is we need to create a really strong connection to our sovereign self. And that's how these queens help us with that. They help us to be able to pay attention to each of these areas. Once that connection is created, rather we do that through our learning or through the exercises, then we have to move into the activity of maintaining that connection and strengthening that connection. So It's really about developing a personal practice, a personal sovereignty practice that you do as often as you can, preferably on a daily basis. And that's how you get to the point where your sovereignty is not something that you have to try to do anymore, but it's something you've actually embodied and it lives in you. Now, how important is self-love in that practice? It's essential because Mm -hmm. the the baseline for everything is self-love and self-acceptance. And so that means we need to accept ourselves when we're doing great and when we're not doing great and love ourselves when we're, you know, somebody that we're proud of and even when we've made mistakes. Wonderful. I'm glad that you shared that. (laughs) So I imagine with, you know, you still get triggered, right? You're human. Yeah. So do you have your own practices to help you maintain your sovereignty? Oh, for sure. So I do basic energy practices on a regular basis. I work with these amazing chakra oils, which help to balance my energy body. And more than that, I have done a lot of healing work so that I have fewer tender places in me that can get touched. And when they do get touched, I take responsibility and clean that up. Now, how has your life changed overall since stepping into your sovereignty? I'm a happier person. I'm a more relaxed person. I'm able to really have beautiful flowing relationships with my family. So I used to, everybody knew I loved them because I did all the stuff, but (laughs) they didn't necessarily feel the love, you know, sometimes because it was sort of harsh. And now we just have a really soft and beautiful, loving, nourishing, nurturing environment for all of us. And, and that's, I mean, there's nothing else you could, I could want in the world. And I still have all the outward success, but on the inside, I feel more fulfilled and more at peace and at harmony. And I imagine that's also changed your work with your, your clients as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's gone from something that's an intellectual exercise to actually being something that changes lives for the better on a regular basis. And I'm so honored and lucky to do this work. I love that. So how do we instill sovereignty in our daughters? Well, it starts by showing her that the feminine is valuable because we value ourselves. We become good models for what it means to value the feminine. And then we have to to take every opportunity that comes up to help them understand that they are valid and valuable, that we listen to them, that we care about how they think and they feel and maybe we can't do everything they want in the moment but we validate their feelings that I can see you really want that but we need to do this instead right now and here's how we can do something else later so it's a different kind of parenting where you're actually recognizing the sovereignty of your own child love that and now how important is it to have a connection with your body and a relationship with your body when you're stepping into your sovereignty It's everything because your body will trip you up uh, if you don't have a relationship with it. It's constantly talking to you and giving you clues about how, you know, we when we've disconnected from our body, we we lose connection to all that information about whether something feels safe, whether something feels good. And we need to be connected to our bodies because our bodies don't lie. They're full of powerful information for us. And you cannot rule your queendom effectively if you don't have that information. And how do you continue to work with women today? 
my primarily women come to me to do circle work, group work, where we come together in a cohort and we spend the year going through each of these seven queens and really digging in and doing the healing work for how we can bring this sovereignty into play in our lives. I also offer different kinds of online programs that are shorter. And sometimes people work with me individually one-on-one if they want to have some private work. And I'm curious, is there a specific queen that was hardest for you to connect with and why? I had a lot of challenges with my passionate queen because she is I was afraid of her. I was afraid of her (laughs) desire. I was afraid of her wildness. I was afraid that if I let my needs, wants, and desires out, they would get so big that I would ruin my life and I would just become this voracious, you know, uh, I used to call it my Hoover vacuum cleaner mode where you're just so needy. Because I had I had a really negative relationship with the idea of needs. And I had to really grow into the willingness to be uncomfortable, to stand in my needs until I got more clear that, no, it's not a never-ending pit or abyss, you know, (laughs) and (laughs) you can get get through it. So in embracing female sovereignty, I know you mentioned this before, it doesn't mean to exclude masculinity, correct? Right, right. so, So how does this benefit just even a relationship with men? by embracing our female sovereignty? One of the things it does is it removes a lot of the unnecessary power struggles out of the space. Mm. So masculine energy is designed to be the victor and it it loves challenge. That's its primary um, mode of operating. So if, if somebody's having a moment of challenge, it, whether it's the male or the female or whoever, whichever partners, because this happens in same-sex couples as well. If the other partner comes in brings in that masculine energy what it does is it starts to escalate one starts to escalate over the other feminine energy on the other hand is the mistress of (laughs) de-escalation and so when you have greater access to your feminine energy you can de-escalate a scenario or a situation so that you can find an easy loving answer without having to go through the muck to get there And you're also allowing a space for them to show up in your life, right? Well, for sure. I mean, men actually part of the masculine energy is to serve. Mm -hmm. And, and so in order, in order to be served, I have to acknowledge that I have a need that needs serving, (laughs) or I have a willingness to receive. You know, one, I tell this story about coming home from my master energy teachers workshop where I just really gotten this stuff on board for the first time ever. And these two guys fought over putting my bag up in the bins while I was, you know, (laughs) making sure I was in the right seat on the airplane. And I mean, I just happened to be in a very open feminine energy because of all the work I'd been doing. So they, they didn't even ask, you know, they just (laughs) put the thing in there. And when I turned around and I thanked them, and I was smiling and grateful. They just beamed because for, for I'm going to tell you, for a fraction of a second, they thought, oh, crap, what did we just do? <laughs> she can turn around and say, I didn't need your help. Why are you touching my bag? And there's so, the queen, right? There's yeah. the queen. Well, we're running out of time here, but how can my listeners learn more about you and your lovely book? The book's available on Amazon, so you can Google for it there. Um, my website is remabonario.com, and you can learn all about me there. I'm the only Rima Bonario in the whole world, as far as I know. So uh, Wonderful. Well, thanks again for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And thank you to Eric, my stellar producer, you the listener, KKNW, Timber Country, and Cape Town Zone Radio. You can find me at sakurasutter.com. And tune in next Wednesday for another Love from the Hip presents Go Beyond the Veil. Stay kind out there, stay true to you, and don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead, I dare you.